tonight, we skip to 1 Corinthians 11. I'll warn you. Head coverings. I knew there was some reason I didn't want to teach this book. Well, oh, to begin with, I need to announce that if you would feel more comfortable writing down your question rather than standing up and exposing yourself, I'll take written questions. Of course, that's nice because I get to filter them. But if you would prefer to write out a question, if it would help you formulate it, uh, uh, write out a question and give it to uh, one of the boss men around here or just hand it to me. And uh, somehow or other, I'll get it. Uh, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read this through. This is one of the most confusing passages in the New Testament. Uh, most of the commentators I looked at said, well, we understand part of this, but we don't understand all of it. I, on the other hand, understand part of it, but not all of it. <clears throat> but I want you to understand uh, this whole passage about uh, covering and uncovering and heads comes right in the center of a section discussing the Lord's Supper and worship. Okay? Chapter 11, uh, verse 16, uh, chapter 10, verse 16. Chapter 10 starts with the statement that all of our forefathers were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. We all ate the same spiritual food. We all drank the same spiritual drink. We were drinking from a spiritual rock that followed them. Um, this is regarded by some of us as a good proof text for children of the Lord's Supper since there wasn't anything else to eat but manna back in those days. Manna souffle, manna hamburgers, manna cheeseburgers, manna a la king. You know the drill. Okay, and so that's what they, all of them, and then he continues on and he says, is not the cup of blessing that we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? There's one bread, there are many... There is one body, we all partake of one bread. Look at the nation Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices, that means the peace offerings, sharers in the altar. And he goes on, uh, he talks about uh, the conscience of eating meat sacrificed to idols. He says it's nothing, uh, as long as you don't participate in the idol feast, who cares where the meat came from? And then he goes and talks about men and women in worship, and then he goes back in chapter 11, to talking about when you come together for the Lord's table. So it's important for us to understand that this is in a, in a very tight liturgical context. The expectation of the New Testament is when you get together for church, you have the Lord's Supper. Uh, the Reformers, our Reformers, all wanted that. They couldn't get to have it. And so now we've had 400 years of, of people asking, okay, what is a worship service supposed to be like without the Lord's Supper? which is a question the New Testament doesn't really answer because it doesn't consider that you would get together and not have the table as well as the Word, which contextualize one another. The table helps us to understand what the Word is all about, and the Word helps us to understand what the table is all about. Or as, uh, as N.T. Wright very helpfully says in Luke 24, the men say after Jesus disappeared, our hearts were warmed while he talked to us about the word, and then we saw him who, as he was when he broke the bread. Okay? That's kind of your order of worship right there. Word and then sacrament. <laughs>
Okay. So the, the Bible assumes you're going to do these things together, and uh, we have a whole centuries of discussion of what it means how to, how to do worship without having them together, and that causes a problem. But there's also this problem here about the woman praying, uh, leading in worship with her head covered or uncovered, and then in chapter 14, the women being silent in the churches. Uh-oh. For they're not permitted to speak. Let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. Now, you might ask yourself, where does the Old Testament say that women are supposed to subject themselves and be silent in worship? Huh. You know, it says right here, just as the Torah, just as the law says, let the women be silent in the church and let them subject themselves. Where is that passage in the Old Testament that says, let the women keep silent in church and be in submission? You all have Bibles. You could look out in the margin and see if there's a cross-reference. There is not one. Huh. I know what the answer is. And for $20, I'll take <laughs> Well, before we even look at these passages, we need to remind ourselves of some fundamentals. And I think this is where some of the commentators get tripped up. Because the answer to that question of where the Old Testament says, let the woman keep silent and let her learn in submission, is in Genesis 2. And if you understand that, we will understand pretty much the rest of what 1 Corinthians says, because let me remind you, this is a new creation. God is reaching into the nothingness and making a new creation, as we saw this morning. He takes the things that are not and makes a new ex nihilo creation out of the cross. The cross is the absolute death of the world. Three hours of darkness. We're all the way back to the first verse of the Bible. And in God, it starts to make the world anew. And this is telling us that the context of the discussions here in 1 Corinthians goes back to the garden. All the stuff about food is garden stuff. And the stuff about men and women is garden stuff. And so I want us to go back to Genesis 2. You knew we'd get there sooner or later. In every lecture, we get to Genesis 2. Should have it memorized by now. All right. <clears throat> now, in Genesis chapter 1, we have already read that God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the cattle. This is not really a command. It's a statement of what people are going to do. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both men and women are made in the image of God, and nothing that Paul says is going to change that. Okay? And God says to the man and the woman, verse 29, to Adam and Eve, which Eve is a later name, but to man and woman, Ish and Isha. Behold, I have given y'all, no, I've given you, y'all is singular, the plural is all y'all. I just have to share that because people don't know that. <clears throat> I've given all y'all every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of the earth and every tree that has fruit yielding seed it shall be food for you. Okay? 
God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Now, Genesis 2 gives us an expansion of what God did on the sixth day. Don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. And um, here we find more details. So now we're going to drop back, get a little bit more details, and we find out that, verse 7, Yahweh God formed man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils breath of life, that is, the Holy Spirit, and man became a living being. And Yahweh God planted a garden toward the east, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Okay, now that's going to be expanded in the verses that follow. But we understand from this, apparently, that Adam watched his father plant this garden. And he learned something. Now, the garden would have come up real fast, and Adam is going to find out that it takes a little bit longer ordinarily for trees to grow up and other things to happen. But he learns things. His father is showing him things, patterning things for him. And in verse 9, it says, Out of the ground, Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that's pleasing to the sight and good for food. All the trees were pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the center of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees in the center, every last one of them pretty to look at and good for food. Then we read about these rivers that flowed out to the rest of the world, indicating that sooner or later you're going to leave this garden and go out, and that's going to be part of the, the story here. And then we resume in verse 15, Yahweh God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to beautify it and to guard it. Right, to keep it means to guard it. It's the first word you learn in Hebrew. Shamer means to guard, or he guards. Okay, To beautify it and to guard it, to make it prettier and prettier, and to protect it. Protect it from whom? There's nothing fallen in the world at this point. Angels have not yet fallen. The end of the sixth day, everything was very good. The angels have not yet fallen at the end of the sixth day. Satan falls immediately before he tempts Adam and Eve to fall. There's really not much more time in which he could have fallen. Okay? So, <clears throat> he's put in the garden to cultivate and to guard it just in general, to keep it, you know, to make sure it's doing okay. And that's going to be, you know, once Satan falls, he's supposed to guard it against the devil as well. And Yahweh God, verse 16, commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. That includes the tree of life. In fact, that's the one you really ought to go to first, get more life. Life comes from God. You don't have it in yourself. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, knowledge of good and evil is a synonym for wisdom. The book of Hebrews says, Y'all are still babies. You should have knowledge of good and evil by now, but you don't. Solid food is for the mature who by their senses exercise have come to knowledge of good and evil. But you don't have it. And he's insulting them. Or Priscilla. You know, when it comes to, you know, the insulting parts of Hebrews were written by Priscilla, I'm sure. It's just a woman getting even with the men. No, not really. See. I don't think Priscilla wrote Hebrews. It's clear from 2 Peter chapter 3 that Paul wrote Hebrews. We can fight about that afterwards. Um, but back to, the, back to being serious here. Um, in the day you shall not eat of it, in the day you shall die, because it's knowledge of good and evil. Now, 
Remember, this is a good tree. It says, every tree was pleasing to the sight. Every tree was good for food. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is pleasant to the sight, and it's good for food. And he says, don't eat of it, and the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Solomon prays, give to your servant knowledge of good and evil. And God says, because you have asked for wisdom, wisdom, knowledge of good and evil, is what kings have. It's by me kings reign, says wisdom. And if we get back to chapter 1, we'll have to talk about that a little bit more. By wisdom the world was made. And this new wisdom that's in the cross is a new beginning for a new world made out of a new wisdom. But that's what we've been talking about this morning, and we kind of have to go over to these other passages now. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And, you know, we always hear that as a threat, but actually it's just a statement, okay? The day you eat this tree, you'll die. What does that mean, die? Well, the next thing that happened, in verse 18, Yahweh God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Ooh, something not good. Ooh. I will make a helper fit for him. A helper corresponding to him. Or as your Bible says, maybe a helper help meet or fit for him. The word help meet does not exist in the Bible, okay? That's an artificial word people get from kind of reading this verse too fast in the King James. A helper suitable for him. Fit for him, just the right kind of helper for him. Man is made first and a woman is made to help the man. Now, I know that may sound a little bit bothersome, but we're going to try to show you how cool that is, ladies. Okay. And out of, but what does this mean? I want you to start thinking, what is a helper fit for the man? Oh, well, it's a female who can have babies for him. This is about procreation. No, it's not. It's not. Okay? Out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. I think what that means is not out of the ground he made new ones, but out of the lands he gathered together, he called together, formed them, formed them up, and brought them to the man. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all the cattle. Yahweh didn't have to bring the cattle to Adam because they were already there with him. The word cattle means animals that live close to people. And he brought the others from outside the garden in the old field area, which Adam has not gone out into the field yet. Okay, He brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever man called them. And God made, man gave names to all the cattle and birds of the sky and beasts of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. What kind of helper? Well, in context, a helper to beautify and to guard the garden. But in even more close context, somebody to be in the garden with him. Now, we have a contrast here between the Garden of Eden and the Land of Eden. Or in this passage, the garden and the field. What's that difference? The garden later on in the Bible is called the sanctuary, or we call it the church. When you are in church, when you are in the sanctuary, you're in the garden. When you go out into the field, you're out in the field. 
Adam needs a helper in the sanctuary. What this means in context is he needs somebody to help him worship God, somebody else who can talk. Animals don't usually talk. Well, animals do talk. I mean, your dog says, feed me. You know, you know what dogs say. You know what cats say. You know, the lion says, be afraid, be very afraid. You know, animals do talk. You know, birds are out there singing. I love God. God loves me. This is my tree. Get away, you squirrel. They do talk, but, you know, and they don't, they don't talk in a worship dialogue. Okay? So, Yahweh God calls deep sleep, death sleep to fall on man. So this is telling Adam what this, in the day you eat of it, you will die, might be like. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh of that place. The word rib just doesn't mean flesh, a bone. It means flesh and bone, parts. Adam says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's this whole side, a whole side of beef, a whole side of Adam is taken out. He closed up the flesh of that place, so he seals the man off to be different from the woman. And Yahweh God fashioned, built up into a woman, the rib that he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man sings, this at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, because she was taken out of Ish. Or we could just say Flamet, because she was taken out of flame. Uh, the word Ish means uh, a, a little fire, it's related to the word esh, which means a big fire. And human beings are lights, they're little, they're little flames. Uh, uh, Elijah makes a big pun out of this when they say, Oh, ish of God, come down, he says, you want some ish? How about some ash? And fire comes down and consumes them in. You know, you don't want, want a little old ish like me, how about a lot? How about some ash? So, you know, human beings are flames, they're lights in the world, and that's why this word Little little flot, little fire is used. She shall be called Isha, Flamet, because she was taken out of flame. This cause a man leaves his father and mother, cleaves to his wife. Well, that kicks some of this hyper-patriarchy in the head, doesn't it? None of this living with the grandparents stuff. And they shall become one flesh. So they go back to being one flesh, okay? Now, that's the end of the paragraph. The next verse needs to be in the next chapter and sadly, it's not now. Okay? Now we have to examine our facts. God tells Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But a little bit later in the day, we've already read, God said to both Adam and Eve, every tree shall be food for you. So what does Eve hear God say? She hears God say, eat them all. Right? God doesn't say to Eve, you can't eat this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She hears God say, and we're supposed to use our brains when we read this now, you know, Genesis 1 does not come from the E source and Genesis 2 from the J source. This is all one story. Okay, so we put it all together. We're not liberals. Anybody's liberal here? Some of these guys have guns, so don't admit to being a liberal. <laughs> Just important safety tip. All right. So when we go on and we continue on, the next paragraph says the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And it ends. The eyes of them both were open and they saw they were naked and they tried to cover themselves. So that's the beginning and end of the next paragraph. And chapter three says the serpent was wiser 
than any of the outside beasts, the guys that were in the beasts of the field that Yahweh God had made. And he comes into the garden to teach Adam and Eve so that they can grow up from being babies and they can go out into the field. Because eventually, you know, it's nice to have pineapple like we did this morning and some fruit. But if you had nothing but fruit all the time and no donuts, <laughs> it would be bad. But there were no donut trees in the garden. The donuts are growing out there. And it takes wisdom to know how to make a donut. You have to plant the wheat. You have to harvest it at the right time, winnow it. Then you got to get some sugar cane. And you have to have some boiling oil, you know, canola or something, and dip those. And you have to realize to poke a hole in it. That's the secret. And then, you know, there's all these things that you have to learn by wisdom before you can make donuts. And we're supposed to grow up to be donut eaters. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, what you want is donut and a glass of wine, which takes even more work. So that's, that's the stuff that's out in the field. And the serpent is the wisest of all the animals. Now, how do I know that? Because it says it right here. But also, Jesus said, be wise as a serpent, didn't he? If kangaroos were the wisest, he would have said, Why be wise as a kangaroo. Jesus isn't fooling around. He wants us to have the best, and the best means be wise as a serpent. So this is the wisest. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge of good and evil. Wisdom is the ability to handle things out in the kingly area. So Adam and Eve are supposed to come to this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're supposed to go to sleep and wake up glorified, just like Adam did. And they need to have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. In other words, to become wise. And then they can come to that tree and whatever it means. And what it means is to undergo good death and then be resurrected to glory. And that's what Jesus does on the cross. Okay? In a sense, Jesus dies twice. He dies for three hours to pay for our sins. He's cut off from God and that's horrible and it's dark. And then he says... It's accomplished. And then he just breathes out his spirit. And that's really another kind of death. He voluntarily gives forth his spirit. And as his spirit goes forth, the Gentile soldier says, Surely this man was the king. This man was the son of God. That means king. That's the first giving of the spirit is right there on the cross. And the first Gentile is converted right there, and recognizes Jesus as King, Son of God. Very important for you to see that. Okay, so this whole business of coming to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil means becoming a king. And the serpent comes in to teach them about wisdom so that they can become a king. But he's, if he hasn't been yet, he's just about to be corrupted by Satan. Behind this serpent is the chief of the angels who is supposed to instruct Adam and Eve and he goes bad. If he hasn't already gone bad a few minutes ago, he's going to go bad during this conversation. Now, it would be a lot of fun to spend a lot of time on this, but I'm just hitting the high points here. They'll have to have me back. So the serpent says to the woman, and we know that Adam is standing there next to her because they're both standing there and they're naked and they're not ashamed. And the serpent says, did God say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? That's a good question. But Socratic question, you're going to learn wisdom, you're going to learn to think about things, and she has to think. Well, 
I didn't actually hear God say it. But she says, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree that's in the center of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Well, where did she learn that from? Adam. Did she trust Adam? Yes. Is Adam her pastor as well as her husband? Yes. Was the woman silent in the garden while she listened to her husband? Yes. You see, this is the original er story to which Paul is referring in this new creation book of 1 Corinthians. And she shows that she's smart. She's figuring things out. She says, we shouldn't eat it, and we shouldn't touch it. And that's very true. Touch not, taste not, handle not, they go together. Leviticus 11, what you don't eat, it's better not to touch. She's beginning to reason about the law of God, apply it to new circumstances, beginning to deepen in her understanding of it, beginning to acquire wisdom. That's what it's all about, these questions to acquire wisdom. Then the serpent denies, you know, he's, he contradicts God, and this is, this is his sin. God, uh, you shall surely not die. And then he tells her some true things in the wrong context. God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Well, we're, that's what happens. Their eyes are open. They saw that they were naked, and they made fig, tree, fig leaves. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's a certain way in which that's true. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, well, we've already seen every tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. We've already seen every tree was a delight to the eyes. The tree was desirable for wisdom. That's true. This is Mr. Wisdom Tree. Everything she sees is true, but she still was not supposed to eat of it. But then she took from his fruit and ate, and she gave to her husband standing next to her, and he ate. Well, all right. Jesus is better than that. You know, when they came for Jesus in the garden... He jumped out in front of the garden and said, You want me? Take me. Let all these go. He protected his bride. But Adam stands there the whole time allowing this conversation to go on because he wanted Eve to see it so he could see what would happen. And when she keeled over dead and God came back, he said, Well, she ate some, but I got more ribs. How about another one? (laughs) Adam is supposed to guard the garden and he does not guard his wife who is in the garden. But that's the beginning. This is the story that begins to tell us about this relationship between men and women. And it's all the stuff that Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians. Man is made first, but woman is made second as the glory of the man. Glory does not come first. Glory comes at the end. Glory is eschatological. The Bible says that the man, that men are heads, men have headship. The word headship doesn't primarily mean boss. It means originator. The very first word in the Bible is, at the head of things, God made the heavens and the earth. Bereshit, rosh means head. At the head. Head, we speak about the headwaters of a river. It's where things start. Men start things. Men initiate things. Even ordinarily, though not always. Uh, when it's dark at night, it's the husband who initiates things. Okay? And in history, men are initiators. Men 
Not exclusively. Some women make pretty good initiators and pioneers, but it's usually men who are pioneers, usually men who develop new things, and it's women who glorify things and bring things to completion. The man comes on the scene first and starts things. The woman comes on the scene and beautifies and enhances and glorifies the things that the man starts. In worship, it is a man's voice that is supposed to initiate worship, and it's the bride who responds. So if I bow to you and say, the Lord be with you, you bow back to me, let's make you bow, and say, and also with you, all right? I speak first. Let us worship God in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. You say, amen. When we do responsive readings, the man's voice comes first, the bride's voice comes second, okay? At the end of the worship service, the benediction is said, and the last thing is the bride singing, amen. That's history. Mankind started with a man, Adam. It ends with a bride, the city of Jerusalem. We are all in this bride. Even the structure of biblical books is this way. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus appears in glory. And he's the measurement at the end of the book. We see the bride in glory, made after his image. In Ezekiel. Ezekiel is baptized and taken up into the chariot in Ezekiel 1. At the end of the book, we have the glorious temple and city, which is the bride. A negative example is the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah spends the first 15 chapters of his book wishing he had never been born and lamenting his situation. And at the end of the book, we have five chapters of lamentations over the city. Okay? And this is the way covenants are made. The first time the Ten Commandments were given, it says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. And what's in the house? That is, his wife, his slaves, his animals. Don't covet those things. But when the covenant is made again 40 years later, it says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house and the things in the house like slaves and animals. What's happened to the woman? She's no longer part of the house. She's now the queen next to the husband over the house. Well, what's happened in those 40 years? Well, the first time the Ten Commandments were given, God spoke them and wrote them on stone. But 40 years later, when the Ten Commandments were given, Moses spoke them so that the word was made flesh and came out of a human mouth. And what happened in between that time is the death and resurrection of Israel. In the book of Numbers, we have a census in chapter 1, and it's a census of the men of Israel, the sons of Israel. And then in the middle of the book of Numbers, we have the death of Israel. We have the death of Miriam, and we have the death of Aaron and the prophesied death of Moses. And then we have a second census at the end of this period, and it's a census of the families of Israel. And it includes... The five daughters of Zelophehad, whose names are Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, Tirza. And of course, everybody's favorite is Hogla. Okay, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirza. And it includes the information about Moses' mother. We find out that Moses' mother was a daughter of Levi. That's how we know the period in the ex, the period in Egypt was 215 years, not 430 years. 
And there's other information about women in that chapter. And not only are the daughters of Zelophehad listed there, then we have two more chapters in Numbers about what happens to the daughters of Zelophehad and how women can inherit property. And so then when we get to the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy, the woman's status has been elevated. Now, this giving of the covenant in two forms, the husband form and then the bride form, happens pretty much every time. God makes Adam first, Adam goes into death and resurrection, then Eve is there. Then things start up. God makes the covenant through Elijah all by himself alone. And Elijah ever does everything by himself alone. But after Elijah's death, Elisha comes back, and it's all about a community. And that's a bride form. In the New Testament, in A.D. 30, the covenant comes in its groom form. And then the bride is shaped and prepared down to A.D. 70 when the bride has made herself ready and the wedding feast begins. We have the fullness of the new covenant in the bride form. And you can find this pattern consistently. Men first and then women. And the women is the glorified form of the covenant. Okay? When the women come along, then it's cool. All right? Before that, it's, hey, men are ugly. Jesus has no form or comeliness that we should desire him. We always have these pictures of Jesus with long hair. Forget it. Jesus looked like an ordinary Jew with a black beard and black hair and not much of his, and not much hair. And he was ordinary enough to where he could escape into crowds of people and nobody really knew who he was. We're just told this. But the bride now, oh, she's adorned in saffron and aloes and Kind of like a fruit cake. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that wasn't the most complimentary thing to say, but this is how things are. The man builds the house, the woman beautifies the house. You know, she wants the furniture moved around, the wall painted again, help hanging this picture here. I mean, if it was a man's house, unless he had artistic gifts, it'd just be, you know, piles of dishes in the, in the sink. The toilet would never be cleaned. And, uh, you know, it would be a wreck. But women come in and they beautify things. Now, some women are very good at being initiators, although they do it, do it from a, a feminine standpoint. There's the occasional woman painter or composer or explorer, but there aren't very many. Okay, And there are women, men who are very artistic and decorate things, but they always do it from a kind of manly point of view, and they're always coming up with new ways to do it because men tend to be the pioneers and initiators in history, and women are the glorifiers. Now, when you understand that, it should remove all feminist temptations. Okay? All right, so the man speaks first. The woman gets to speak last. <laughs> She gets the last word. Uh, women are the beautiful, beautiful parts of things. Men are just the plain old ordinary parts of things. Sorry, guys, but you're made of snakes and snails and puppy dog tails. There's not much you can do about it. Okay? Um, women are made of sugar and, and fruitcake spices and things. Now, that is all behind all the stuff in 1 Corinthians. And... If we understand that, then the passages themselves aren't quite as mysterious, I think. 
So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11, and now we have to get into the whole business of hair and head coverings and all that, but I'm going to give it my best shot, which happens to be the truth. And uh, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 11 in verse 14 and 15, because I think although Paul puts this last, it's actually something that we need to hear first because we don't have the whole situation in mind. He is going to talk about how things should be done in church, and he's going to talk about how things are outside of church in the rest of the world. And we really need to get that outside of the church in the rest of the world stuff first so that we can understand what some of the words in this passage mean. So 1 Corinthians 11, verse 14, he says, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a shame to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. For long hair, her hair is given to her as a glory, as a covering. Now, nature itself, I'm not even going to go into trying to figure out exactly what that means. What is clear is, this is not in the church, it's out in the world. Out in the world, it's a shameful thing for a man to have long hair. How long is long? Well... Long enough to look like the way women in your society look, okay? That's how long men should not have. Men are not supposed to purdy up their hair, okay? I mean, hair dryers, I, hair dryers are for guys. <laughs> if it takes you more than five seconds to do your hair in front of the mirror, there's a problem. Oh, I'm, I'm exaggerating here, but seriously, the point is, men don't press up their hair, men don't wear jewelry, men don't paint their faces, men don't wear beautiful, colorful garments. They dress kind of plain, except in pagan societies, where the men are peacocks and the women are dressed in, uh, well, they're black moving objects. <laughs> you know, they're covered up. That's what the Saudi Arabian women are called by the GIs. Uh, Black moving objects. Well, that's a reversal of the way it ought to be. Okay? Guys are ordinary. Women are pretty. The woman has long hair. That's her glory. Out in the world, her hair is given to her for a glorious covering. Now, we need to understand that. Okay? When you're not in church, the covering on the woman's head is her hair, which is a glorious covering and it shows her glory. Now, with that in mind, I think we can understand at least some of this. Back to chapter 11, verse 1. Well, verse 2, really. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. And I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, He doesn't say Jesus Christ now. He says Christ, and that points more to the church. Who is the head of every man? Well, it's it's Jesus, and it's the officers of the church. It's, you know, the elders of the church have some headship over every man. When he says Christ by itself, the body of Christ is the head of every man. Sorry, I know that may grade a few of you guys the wrong way. The elders are in charge of me. (laughs) Yeah, well, see if the elders are in charge of me. Well, that's really what this means, and it'll come up again. And the man is the head of a woman, 
And God is the head of the body of Christ. Christ by itself. Always think body of Christ unless there's some... If it says Christ Jesus, we're talking about Jesus. Our problem is we talk about Jesus and we call him Christ. Christ this, Christ that. Christ was on the cross. Christ said this. The Bible doesn't talk that way. It calls him Jesus. And I would encourage you to think of him by his name, which is Jesus. Okay? Just It took me a long time to stop saying Christ and say Jesus. But when we're talking about Jesus, we need to say Jesus. He's a person. Okay? Christ is a title. And it has this broader meaning, and it's obscured to us because we call Jesus Christ all the time instead of more often calling him Jesus the way the Bible does. Okay, so let me read this to you. I want you to understand that the body of Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, or the husband is the head of a wife. You can translate probably better. And God is the head of the body of Christ. So there is a hierarchy here. God is over the elders of the church. The elders of the church are over the men, and the men are over the women, in a sense. The husband is over a wife. Now he gets to the hair thing. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head or shames his head, causes shame to his head. Now, the word head is being used two ways here, and this is part of the complication. If I am leading in prayer or prophecy in church, this is not talking about just being in church. This passage has nothing to do with wearing hats in church. It has to do with leading in worship. How the woman is to, what a woman is to do with her hair while she prays or prophesies leading in worship. A man who has something on his head, a hat, while he's praying or prophesying, shames his head. Is it this head? Or is it the elders, Christ, whom he shames? Well, he brings shame on the situation somehow, okay? A man is not supposed to have anything covering his head because his head isn't glorious. A man's head isn't really glorious. Uh, A man has long hair, it's a dishonor. But it doesn't say if he has short hair, it's glorious. Face it, guys, we're just not glorious. And that's why if a man stands up in church and leads in worship or stands up and leads in prayer, it does not conflict with the glory of God because men don't have glory. All right? The purpose of a worship service is for all the glory to go to Jesus. Amen? So there ought not to be any other glory in the room. Which is why women have to keep their hair completely covered up if they lead in worship. If they just end the church, that's fine. If they lead, better put a towel around it and not one wisp of hair show. You have to disguise yourself as a man. Men don't have glory on their heads, so men lead in worship because that doesn't conflict with the glory of Christ. Women do have glory on their head. So if they're going to lead in prayer or prophesying, they've got to cover it up. That's the meaning of this passage. So I'm going to continue. I've already told you what it says, so we can just stop now, but I think it's better if we read it. All right? The man, if he puts something on his head, it's as if he's trying to glorify his head. It's like wearing a hat. No, don't do that. Leave that balding head exposed and be humble. 
Verse 5, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, that is, exposes her glory. Oops, sorry, honey. Every, wo- every woman who exposes her glory, has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, brings disgrace on her head. She's one and the same with those whose head is shaved. I'm not sure what this means, but I'm going to give it a shot in a second. Let me continue. If a woman does not cover herself, is literally what it says, let her also shear herself, cut all her hair off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to shear herself, cut all her hair off, or have her head shaved, then let her cover herself. This means cover her hair. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. Okay? But man's glory is not his own. So there's no conflict. But the woman is image of, and that's not written in because it's understood, the woman is the glory of man. The wife comes after the man. The man initiates, the woman glorifies. Or the wife is the glory of the husband. The husband dresses in plain old clothes, and the woman and his wife gets to wear makeup and jewelry and have her hair, use a, a, a blow dryer on her hair, and um, wear pretty clothes and everything, and be the glory of her husband. Okay? Man's glory, a woman's glory, is not to be exposed in worship, but covered. Or another way to do it is, since the woman is the glory of the man and her hair is the glory of her husband, that's got to be covered up. Now, we are not talking about being in church. As I said to you at the beginning, this passage is bracketed on both sides with simply being in church and being at the table. This passage is not talking about whether women should cover their hair up in church. It's talking about the specific acts of leading in prayer and prophesying, which in this book, or it has to do with praying and prophesying, which in this book means leading in it, standing up and doing it by yourself. Okay? We'll find out that, you know, uh, uh, praying can mean praying in tongues, prophesying, standing up and saying things in the assembly. It's okay for women to do that, but if they do it, you got to have a hood over all that hair or have a towel around it or something because we don't want to see any hair. You have to disguise yourself as a man. All the glory has to be concealed. I go into these churches and they have, you know, one person get up and read a scripture lesson and another person get up and read a scripture lesson and another person get up and lead in prayer. And half of them have women do it and they just get up with their hair there or with a pretty hat on their head which just adds to the glory of their hair. No, that's not the idea. If you're going to have a woman get up and read the scriptures in a worship service, I don't think that's usually a good idea, but if no men are present, then you might have to have a woman do it. She needs to cover up her hair. Cover up the glory so that all the glory is God's. That's what this means. Then he gives some arguments here in verse 8. The man does not originate from the woman, but the woman from the man. Well, that's in Genesis 2. That's what he's going back to. Indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. That's again in Genesis 2. It's not good for the man to be alone. We need a woman for his sake. Why? To participate in the dialogue of worship. Now, see, we're Americans. And we say, 
the most important thing you can do is read your Bible every day by yourself and have your own personal quiet time. And to come to the garden alone. Okay? God says, it's not good to come to the garden alone. You know, he says, when two or three are gathered together, that's when I'm there. Now, I want you to read your Bible, and I want you to have personal devotions, okay? But that's not where it starts. God says, that's okay, but it's really not good. It's not the best. The best is when there's two of you together, and there's one who can lead and one who can respond. God likes to hear that dialogue. He likes to hear the men sing the first stanza and the women sing the second stanza. Well, not necessarily that, but the, all the dialogue and give and take in the worship service, which the man as a pastor, as Jesus' representative, initiates, and the congregation as a bride responds to. That's good. God says, that's good. It's not good for Jesus to be alone. It's not good for Jesus to be up there on the cross alone, ruling the world. It's not good for Jesus to be resurrected and be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. I'll make a bride who can respond to him so that when Jesus speaks in the worship service through the pastor, there's a bride who responds to him. But the first words come from the man whose voice is an octave lower than a woman's. And this is just musical science here. Women's voices are decorative because they exist in the realm of higher overtones than men's voices do. God just made the world this way, folks. Okay? Men's voices are fundamental. They're lower, most men's. And women's voices are higher and decorative. (laughs) And if you compose music, you're going to compose a bass line, which would be the foundation of your song, and then you're going to compose your melody decorative line, which is up above. It's the way it works. You can't do it the other way. Try it. Won't work. The world is made this way. It's created reality. Okay? So then he says in verse 10, <laughs> Therefore the women ought to exercise authority over her head. That's literally what it means. Women, take charge of your heads. All right? You know, if you're going to lead in worship, cover up your hair. We don't need to be beating you over the head about this. This is what it means. And he says, because of the angels. (laughs) Oh, that's clear as mud, isn't it? (laughs) Now, he does go on, before we get back to that one, he says, however, in the Lord, neither is the woman independent of the man, nor is the man independent of the woman. The woman originates from the man. Yeah, that's right. Eve was pulled out of Adam. But also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to lead in prayer to God uncovered? That's really what he's saying here. All right. So he says, look, there's this give and take. You know, men and women are not the same, but each one does things for the other. There's this mutual one anothering, one anothering of one another that is being one anothered here. And, you know, the word one another, alelon, uh, in Greek, is Paul's biggest word. Because the three persons of the Trinity are always one another in one another. And the church is a model of the internal life of the Trinity. And so men and women are different. But in this regard, uh, this is what he's getting at here. Now you see in the, in the Corinthian church, new creation, maybe women can be priests just like men. Maybe women should lead in worship just like men do. And he's saying no, in the new creation, the difference between men and women is still there. 
if a woman is going to exercise any leadership in a worship service for any small part of it, then let her cover up her hair and conceal her glory and be like a man for that moment of time and do it because of the angels. All right. Two possibilities here. One, which I think is less likely, is that this refers to spirit angels. It's a way of saying men and women have power over angels in the new creation. And to signify this in the church, men and women display their, a woman displays the power over her hair, whether she's going to show it or not show it, depending on what she's doing during worship. And this is a way of showing power over the angels. Originally, angels had power over us, and now the woman has power over the angels. And in particular, it was that old snaky angel who uh, corrupted the woman in the first place, and now the woman gets to beat him up and stomp on his head. And when she covers up her hair in prayer and conceals her glory, that just crushes the serpent's head one more time. Now, I think that might be true, but I think it's more likely that the word angel here, as it usually does in the New Testament, usually the word angelos means messenger and it refers to human beings. John the Baptist is an angelos. Uh, the pastors of the churches are called angeloi uh, in, in, uh, in Revelation. And I think what this means is this whole system needs to be there because of the officers of the church. You have the headship of Christ, the body of Christ over the man and over the woman, and the relationship between men and women is there so that there is peace for the officers of the church. You know, it's hard enough being an elder and a pastor with all the garbage that goes on in the church without men and women acting weird. So what he says is, look, have, have these things set out and do them the right way so that the, so that the elders don't have to be all upset about it. Because there's nothing worse than a bunch of women trying to take control of everything and men standing by and letting them do it. I don't mean that sarcastically, but I, I mean, you know, to have these relationships in the church all messed up is a hard thing to sort out if you're the if you're the elders and pastors of the church. So I think that's what he means because of the elders. He says, you ladies, take control of your hair. Cover it up if you're going to lead in worship. If you're going to stand up and offer a prayer, cover it up. Don't just put a hat on it. That just glorifies it more. Cover it up. Now, very quickly, my time is up, but we have to finish this. Besides, Jamie doesn't really want to sing anyway. Y'all don't really want to hear him. You want to hear more of me. <laughs> I'll just give him a couple of more minutes to get ready here. Uh, very quickly, 1 Corinthians 14. He starts off in this whole section. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. <laughs> what kind of angels are those? Do angels have languages? Do people ever speak in them? I don't think so. I think this means the tongues of men and of messengers. That means the language Hebrew. If I speak in all the languages of men, the Gentile languages, and the messenger language, which is Hebrew. That's what he means when he says tongues of men and angels. Gentile languages and Hebrew. I may be wrong, but the fact is I'm right. <laughs> all right, now verse 26, he says this. What's going on here, brethren? When you assemble... Each one has a psalm, each one has a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, and its interpretation. Boy, that's great. That's how the worship ought to be. 
when we come together, each one of us ought to be bringing in his own psalm, his own prophecy, his own tongue. I feel a tongue coming on. And you ought to be able to have all these things. And this liturgical worship is for the birds. We need to have a free-for-all worship service where everybody brings these things in. And and this is the way it ought to be. And 1 Corinthians 14 shows it to us. So let's all become brethren. No, as a matter of fact, this is a very signal phrase in Paul in this letter. When you come together, always introduces a criticism. <laughs> you know, when this church comes together, they ain't doing nothing right. And so this is back in 1 Corinthians 11 again. I'll just read this to you. In verse 17, in giving this instruction, I am not praising you because you come together not for the better but for the worse. <laughs> then he says, in the first place, when you come together, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. Therefore, when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper but one of you wolfs down the food first and the other is left with nothing to eat and somebody else is drunk. So now he says, when you come together, each one has a psalm and a teaching and it's chaos. This is not his idea of the way the worship service ought to be done. No, quite the reverse. What is this business of everybody showing up with whatever he wants to do? No, it's supposed to be done under control. And he does it in reverse. He has teaching, revelation, and tongue, and then he goes back through these. First of all, in verse 27 and 28, if anyone speaks in a tongue in a foreign language, it should be by two or at the most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. Oh, well, how do I know that there's going to be somebody to interpret? I feel a tongue coming on right in the middle of the worship service and pop up. And if I'm a woman, cover my head real quick. Okay. And tongue it out. But I, don't, I have to know in advance that there's an interpreter, which means this has to be planned. This has to be arranged. The angels, the elders, the pastors, they need to be, they have to be supervising this because if somebody comes and says, you know, for the past several days I've had this foreign language going through my head, I don't know what it means, maybe I should share it in the worship service. You see how calm and ordinary that is? And then they come to the pastors and he says, well, let's see if there's anybody who feels that they need to interpret something. And then we'll get the two of them together. And yeah, he speaks a bunch of Russian and a guy translates it and says, okay, we'll do that in church. That's the only way this can work. If you've got to know in advance that there's an interpreter who can interpret you. You see, this is not people showing up to church with random stuff. This is planned. Verse 28, if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. He can speak to himself and to God. Come to the pastors and they say, they get on the phone, anybody got an interpretation? Anybody feeling like you need to be in church and translate something? And nobody says yes, we'll say, sorry man, must not be one of those real tongue experiences. Then he says in verse 29, oh, and it has to be two or at the most three, Okay. Two or three witnesses, that's it. That's the rule. Two or three witnesses, that's right out of the law. Then in verse 29 he says, let two or three prophets speak. And let the others pass judgment. Now this is what we need to bear in mind. Prophets are going to speak and then there's going to be a debate concerning what they say. Now that's very interesting because we get the idea that the Holy Spirit gives prophecy. It's absolutely true and there's no room for debate. 
But this is telling us that there's kind of a secondary kind of prophecy or maybe even it may be even something that would go on in our church today that they call prophecy and that we, being Reformed, don't want to use that word. But it would be somebody sharing something that they think ought to be done. You know, I, I think the Spirit would have us go out and pick at this abortion clinic over here. And then you have a discussion of it, some argument about it. Let the others pass judgment. But if, a, verse 30, if a revelation is made to one who is seated, let the first keep silent. What's that about? Oh, just somebody who happens to be sitting down has a revelation. Then the first one has to sit down and let the other guy talk. No. What is the one who is seated? The elders and rulers. They're the ones sitting on the thrones. And if one of the elders or rulers gets a revelation, then that takes precedent. You see, once again, order in the church. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. Spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. you got self-control here, you know? All right. Then he says, in verse 33, breaks in the middle, we have another paragraph. As in all the churches, the saints let the women keep silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak. Let them subject themselves just as the law says. Whew. Well, we've gone back to Adam and Eve, and we've seen what this refers to. Okay, Eve had to learn from Adam what God had to say. And she needed to be quiet so she could listen to him. Okay, She speaks second, not first. Then in verse 35, it says, If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Well, then he says, Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or does it come from you only? And I don't even know where he's going with that. I'm not going to take up the whole... Passage. Well, there's two possible ways to understand this woman keeps silent in the churches. And then there's weird stuff that's come up. All during the Middle Ages, because women are supposed to keep silent in the churches, women kept silent in the churches. Only men sang. That's why those Gregorian chants always sound like men. Okay? <laughs> women... <laughs> women sang only when they were by themselves in the convents. That's why in the English church you have men and boys choirs because women don't sing in church. Women don't do nothing in church. They sit there. Only the men talk. That's not what this means. We've already seen that women can actually stand up and lead in prayer and have some things to say in the meeting. Exactly how this worked out, I don't know. We're left with the ability to set this up a lot of different ways. What does it mean then, let the women keep silent in the churches? Two possibilities. One is that we've, we had teaching, revelation, and tongues. We've talked about tongues, we've talked about revelations, and now we've gone back to teaching. He may be saying women should not teach. They're not permitted to speak in the sense of teaching. But let them listen, subject themselves, as the law says. I think that's very likely. Then he says if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. Well, that indicates something else, which raises the second possibility, and maybe they're both valid. I'm almost done. I've put out enough candy for you all to munch on, okay? Enough bullets for you to shoot back at me in your questions. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Well, if you have a meeting where people are arguing about things and there's a big debate going on, it is not good to let women be involved in that. 
And I don't mean that because it's funny. I mean, I, I realize that sounds funny, but the reason is, if a woman stands up and makes a big speech or an impassioned speech about something, it's very difficult for a man to deal with that and show honor. Men can beat each other up, but men aren't supposed to beat women up, verbally or any other way. I was in a church one time, and I had this experience. I was talking about the dietary laws of Moses, and I made the point that they're not given for health. If they had been given for health, God would have given them to Noah when he gave the right to eat meat. He wouldn't have said, you can eat any meat you want. He would have said, stay away from pigs. And he would, he would have told Abraham, God loves these people. He would have warned them off from pork and shrimp. But God doesn't say that. This doesn't even start to Leviticus 11 and its symbolic series of laws. It's not health laws. Well, predictably, there was a lady in the church who was very much into health food, and she wanted to have a big argument with me, and she started arguing, and she started arguing. Her husband was sitting right next to her, and I thought, what am I going to say? If it was a man, I'd say, sit down and shut up. <laughs> I would have said, you know, I've studied this for years. She's just playing flat out wrong. I don't want to take the time to argue with you. Leave it. I had to be very carefully try to find a way to speak to this lady and say, uh, you just not, I don't think this is right. You know, the Bible says this. She wanted to keep arguing with me, and I thought, if I insult the lady, the husband's going to be mad at me. These are the dynamics that are real in the church, okay? I have no problem with women asking questions if it's stuff like, how do you spell the word oikumene? <laughs> or even if it's, I'm not really convinced of that, Jim, because of this passage over here. But when it gets into a debate, you can't have that. And the context here is, the prophets have spoken, others are passing judgment, and there's a real debate going on here. And it helps us, and we don't need to go outside the Bible for this, but it is helpful to understand that this is what went on in the synagogue all the time. The men would have knock-down, drag-out fights over what a particular text of the Old Testament had to say. And you can't have women and men in the same fight. <laughs> it just doesn't work. You know, the father of the woman or the husband of the woman or the brother of the woman is going to get upset. And uh, somebody might wind up in tears. You can't do it, all right? Men wind up in tears too. Little kids might wind up in tears seeing their mom being beat up by the men. I mean, you can't have this, all right? So that's, I think, the main context here. Part of it is there is an ultimate sense in which Adam teaches Eve. And that principle needs to be respected. And so in the teaching function, women are not to be priests during the worship service. A woman can be a great theologian, she can teach Sunday school, but in the worship service around the Lord's table, which is the context here, the man who represents Jesus is supposed to speak, and the woman is not to speak, but to listen, as the law says. And then I think verse 36 may be speaking of the other context. The men get together and have a knockdown, drag-out fight about something, and if the woman wants to know what went on in the men's meeting, she can ask her husband at home. Okay? I really think that's what this means. Well, the main thing it means is you got to respect the glory and honor of women by not drawing them into conflict situations. And the whole principle here is going back to the creation where men have certain painful duties and responsibilities to initiate things and women have certain wonderful, glorious responsibilities of glorifying and beautifying things, which is a whole lot more fun. All right, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, I'm pretty sure that I didn't get everything right tonight. 
But I ask that uh, in this, as we consider your word, as we wrestle with it, and as we talk about it, that you would give us wisdom and understanding, and that you would help us to apply your word more faithfully from now on and uh, in the years to come. Keep us interested in what you have to say in all those aspects of life that you touch upon in your word. And now bless us as we uh, listen to the program, and then as we sleep tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.